Although he initially trained as an artist at the Ruskin School of Drawing and Fine Arts at Oxford University, John Gerard soon broke away from traditional methods and forms of representation. Decades later, the work of Gerard and his team of specialists is only tangentially related to portraiture, landscape, and representation. His three-dimensional simulations, meticulously orchestrated in video game engines, recreate hybrid worlds that are part real, part fiction, depict inaccessible places, and draw attention to power relations and invisible macroeconomic processes. At the same time, they challenge the temporal and narrative codes of conventional film and video art. Software created to generate impossible scenes which unfold on a time scale, months, years, that elevates them to the category of the unfathomable. In this podcast, John Gerard talks about his initial fascination with 3D scanners and about how they led him to develop his current practice, about his conception of time in art and a particular way of understanding simulation, somewhere between contemplation and the critical gaze. I guess if I was to try and and sort of come to a core interest, it would be something to do with an intersection between power uh, on the one hand. You know, there's so many alternate meanings to the word power. You know, and one of the ones that I'm very interested in is is where ideas of power intersect with ideas of energy. You know, from whence does power acquire its sort of energy and those interrelationships and intersections? And often um, that involves my physically um, being on the landscape, you know, being on the actual physical geography in far-flung places, be it, you know, Midwestern America, be it sort of the Gobi Desert, uh, because much of the sort of, um, you could think of the powerful infrastructures are are very much out of sight, you know, be it the, the data centers or the surveillance posts or, you know, even the energy production, a lot of it is actually very much out of sight, particularly of urban centers. Los Angeles is a little bit unusual in that you have these sort of oil pumps cropping up in the suburbs, but mostly our energy production is very distant from everyday experience of the public. So, you know, often I'm on the landscape, you know, looking at and for things, objects, we could say, which are often involved in in kind of distribution or you know, energy distribution, energy generation, also intersecting with data because data is, of course, energy. You know, data centers, which are, you know, consuming a lot of power, energy, and then using that energy to transmit information globally. You know, the six, particularly six Google, six, I think maybe a few more now, but Google data centers in America that are, you know, very powerfully transmitting um, something so simple as directions, you know, to, to, to millions, hundreds of millions of people globally or at any one time. Um, but yet those sites are very anonymized and very sort of um, invisible. But that brings me to the next subject um, in terms of the the approach and, and the interests, which is, I think it could be described as portraiture, you know, that the medium in which I work, which is simulation, you could call it the virtual, you know, I build virtual worlds. Historically, that zone or that media has been very influenced by fantasy, you know, fantastical forms, fantastical narratives, game narratives, war narratives. And right from the beginning, I was always thought that, you know, what I was finding, you know, on the peripheries of kind of of our societies 
was kind of even more fantastical than that was invented. You know, it was these very strange situations. And the studio kind of dedicated itself to this idea of making facsimiles within the virtual of, of real things, which I guess was an, uh, is still to a degree an unusual strategy in, 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 in 3D. You know, 3D still is very aligned with, with, with sort of um, with fantastical forms. And also, I guess, with stereotype, which is the kind of the other, the alternate um, component of, of the fantastical. It often leans on stereotype, you know, the hero or you know, the fortress or, you know, it's kind of, it's almost like a stereotype of these objects. So I wanted to very much get away from that. Um, but kind of backtracking a little bit, fundamentally what I am producing with a group of collaborators, Werner Putzelberger, a producer, Helmut Bressler, a programmer, is, um, is software. You know, we produce pieces of software, which um, you could describe them as game engines. You know, they are game engine based. They're based around a Russian engine called Unigine. And they are kind of models of these sites that we find. We build this, these sort of semi-functional models, often embedded in, 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 in light conditions of a year. So they, the sun will rise on, the, on the, this world, travel over it, go down, and that'll be accurate over a year. And so coming from an art school background, what I had to do originally in the, in the late 90s into the early 2000s was to sort of reform as an artist from a kind of singular producer, you know, where you conceive of things and produce them primarily oneself to um, assemble a group of producers a little bit more influenced by computer science and, and maybe also cinema than, than historic kind of contemporary art production. Because really those disciplines of modeling and programming in particular are really, really quite specialized. And the modeling in particular in my works is an enormous um, labor, you know, uh, a piece like the frog we've just seen the ex levis piece the modeling was at least six months for a number of collaborators and then the production itself was you know the whole piece took about a year to make because you wait for your resources they come in and then you have to craft this world you know a lot of what you're seeing the depth of field you know the color qualities that's all that's all custom coded you know so it's this we're kind of almost moving a with the medium, with the, the the industry, you know, which is a commercial gaming industry, but also making much greater demands of it than most games do, you know, because they would have multiple scenes and they'd have lower expectations um, aesthetically for those scenes. But so, yeah, so, I mean, I suppose coming to this work here in MACBA, which is called Exlavis Bracket Space Lab, close bracket 2017, what um, characterizes this piece is that uh, unlike works where I wander, you know, in a number of ways, you wander across the internet, wander across the news feeds, wander across the landscape, and in quite a similar way, actually, you know, picking up these, these points of interest, this work was a commission. And that is both a kind of, it's always a challenge, you know, because you are, in this case, the Welcome Collection in London approached me to respond to their collection. Henry Welcome, famous um, pharmacist, early industrial pharmacist, very, very successful kind of mid 19th century to mid 20th century, you know, he's lived a long time and dedicated a, a sizable chunk of his fortune to collecting objects of medical interest because that was his interest. I mean, he actually, Henry Welcome originally patented the pill, like as in, you know, taking drugs and pressing them into a little capsule. That was his original abatement. And he went on, you know, to, to sell all sorts of ointments and, you know, but on a vast scale internationally, a sort of 
But he dedicated a lot of his money to uh, collecting a million objects of medical interest. And uh, the Welcome Collection, through a curator, Paul Bonaventura, developed this idea, which was to use this um, subject of electricity to kind of invite artists to address the collection. So it was an exhibition, which um, eventually just ended up being called Electricity, but it originally was uh, derived from a Walt Whitman poem, the kind of core ideas about this idea of electricity and life. And so I entered the collection and uh, eventually came to this to this Galvanic reanimations, where Galvani, a 18th century gentleman scientist in Italy, was uh, investigating dead frogs with a, with a scalpel. And a little static remained in, in one of these instruments, uh, which caused the nerve to, to trigger a kick, which is now known as a galvanic reanimation. But of course, he had absolutely no idea what this was. It was a total mystery to him. And he spent the next 10 years um, not only sort of obsessively dissecting dead frogs, but also writing this extraordinary treatise on on animal electricity, which he didn't fully understand and actually didn't really come to understand. But nonetheless, he is considered the father of sort of um, neuroelectricity, you know, and the understanding of the role of electricity in the body and in, in the formation of, you know, impulses and, you know, in, within nerves and these kinds of things. But so the, the Welcome Collection had the original first edition of that, and they also had his lab. But in time, um, I collapsed that history of galvanic reanimations with a much later experiment, which happened in space in 1992. So actually, funnily enough, exactly 200 years after the original experiments, in which a vertebrate reproduced in zero gravity for the first time. So a frog, a female, ex levis. Uh, ex levis is an African clawed frog. So historically, based in seasonal ponds in, in parts of Africa, very, very, very tough, you know, can survive very high temperatures, very low temperatures, can survive being, you know, trapped in mud for months on end. So very suited um, globally to lab environments because they are robust. And on that basis was the first vertebrate to reproduce in, in outer space. So I guess it, the Welcome Collection got me thinking about electricity and its 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 role in life, you know. I mean, the distinction between life and death is, you know, in life one has neuroelectricity flowing and in death one simply doesn't, you know. The kind of the systems that sustain life are very much to do with neuroelectricity. So I was thinking really about kind of reproduction and life and electricity and these things. And in the end, it became this piece, this amalgam of this historic experiment in 1792 with these with these great kicks in these dead frogs and a living frog who is seeking to reproduce outside of the the vessel of the earth you know the mantle of the earth in this very sterile scientific environment I entered art school, it's called the Ruskin School of Fine Art in, in Oxford University in 1994. 
1994 was an interesting year in technical terms. Um, if you look to particularly the West Coast of America, you know, a whole generation of actors, you know, entered university in 94, funnily enough, and then went on to kind of almost produce, I would describe it as kind of an industrial reality, you know, be it PayPal, be it, you know, the early browsers, be it, you know, 94 seemed to be a year when a whole sort of generation of undergraduates were faced with an emergent internet, you know, because I, I got onto the internet for the first time in 1994 as an undergraduate. And I was in a university setting, so obviously the, there was a computer science environment and a lab environment where you had these, you know, access to a lot of computing. In the art school, they had a single Mac, which is about this size, you know, an early kind of Mac with a floppy drive. And I mean, so the art school wasn't the site, but the university was an advanced site of engagement with, with you know, with uh, the network, you could call it. And so one of the things I discovered on that network quite quickly, and I have no recollection of how I did find it, but I came across um, 3D scanning, an image of a 3D scan. And um, a 3D scan is where you place an object into an environment where it not only reads its um, three-dimensional form to produce a polygonal replica, you know, in 3D data space, but it also can read its 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 surface qualities in color and light, and and it basically produces a three dimension. You might thinking when I discovered the three D scan in, in in probably about ninety five, I would say, I thought to myself, um, this is interesting because this is effectively a sculptural photograph. This is a photograph that you can turn, and actually, interesting enough, I titled them at that time, and I have notes from that time where I talked about an image object, an object which is an image, and vice versa. And um, I actually, I negotiated with a company called Wix and Wilson outside Oxford that they would produce a scan of my friend Mary. So I brought her out. And they historically had been involved in sizing surveys for big clothing companies. So they would bring in a couple of thousand women in particular, do full body scans. And then these companies would then adjust their core product line to reflect, you know, the ever changing waistline of the English woman. Um, and man, I presume, but I think particularly the women were, were you know, a focus. But so um, they, this company, Wix and Wilson, said, "Sure, bring your friend. You know, we have this three D scanner, and we'll do you a scan." So I got this kind of extraordinary scan in maybe '96, something like that. And then I really kind of carried it with me for really the next five or six years. You know, trying to do something with it. You know, I had this beautiful head scan which you could turn and. But it was made up of a million data points. It was kind of enormously extravagant object. And I left sculpture undergraduate in the UK and brought this object to America, to Chicago, to an MFA. And, you know, at that point, you know, the most powerful machines in 3D were, were called um, silicon graphics, which were this kind of Canadian, you know, $10,000 kind of monolithic things. And... Um, and the software they ran was called Softimage, which was this kind of nightmarish, kind of multi-part kind of, you know, now, you know, where everything's collapsed into a single fundamental zone, you had different interfaces for texturing, modeling, lighting. And I spent like a year and a half, like in Softimage lessons in my MA in Chicago, just kind of. And uh, a lot of the kids there were, were basically, it was kind of, it was almost as if the art school was an industrial school and it was supplying talent to um, industrial light magic in California. And these kids knew exactly where they were going and they built the right things and off they went. But I didn't really get there. You know, I ended up with these kind of, you know, underwhelming models. And I never wanted to model, 
you know, I never wanted to produce hand-built representations of fictitious forms. It was always about 3D scanning. So I kind of, in a sense, failed in Chicago and, um, you know, left making some experimental works and you could think of it as interactive video. You know, I just kind of failed in 3D. And then decided I would do a Master of Computer Science. So I spent one 12-month period in a computer science environment. And really, on arrival, the other players in this setting, are, are, some of them had computer science backgrounds. They were like, yeah, if you want to work with 3D scans, um, they said, you really you should bring them into game engines. Yeah, that's a very interesting place to do so, which was a totally unfamiliar space for me. I mean, I didn't play games. You know, it was not somewhere I was accustomed to. And that was 2004. One um, and I didn't do that really within that setting, but I wrote to um, the Ars Electronica Center in um, Linz and really turned up there 2001 with this 3D scan and this idea of the of the game engine. And interestingly, on arrival in in, in that setting, um, they were very explicit about one thing. They just said, you know, you personally are not going to produce this work. You know, here's a fictional budget and uh, use it to employ some of our collaborators in this lab, this enormous lab, the Future Lab. Here's a modeler, here's a programmer, here's a producer, you know, spend the money over the next year to work with them and to make something, you know, you're in the role of, you know, whatever it may be. And so I did that. And, and at the end of it, I had made my very first very basic work in a game engine. Actually, we couldn't use my 3D scan that I had carried so faithfully for so long because it was really just too dense. It was too, it was unwieldy. And so we, we basically built ahead by hand, you know, in a, in a game engine, in a 3D modeling program put into the game engine. And I've never really gone back to 3D scanning. Like in the end, I sort of function as a scanner, but photographically, you know, if I find a site like a Google data site, you know, we, in this case from the air, cause they wouldn't let us enter, but we, we photograph it in 360, photographically and then the modelers use that to rebuild it as a as a portrait of itself You know, if a 3D scan is a kind of sculptural photograph and it poses questions to histories both of photography on the one hand and histories of sculpture on the other, uh, bring that cast, you know, that, that sort of inanimate cast into a game engine. And I always felt that then you developed uh, an interesting relationship with kind of histories of theater in a sense, you know, because a game engine is fundamentally a platform, like literally like this table. It has edges. And you fill it with props, in my case, laboriously produced props, which are simulations of what I find often on the landscape. And then you, you in a conceptual sense, you, you um, instruct things to happen. You know? But what became clear to me when I was working with programmers to instruct things to happen was that I could say, OK, roll this ball from here to here and take five minutes, which is one instruction. But I could also you know, have a screen on the wall and roll the ball from here to here and take 5,000 years. You know, it's the same instruction. You just add a few zeros to it and the ball will take off to do that action. And I remember just being, it's almost kind of dizzying to kind of understand that kind of like, you know, the durational component of media just suddenly just disappeared. You know, like cinema has a duration because it is a record. 
this new type of moving image does not have a duration. It just is, its only duration is its power source, in a sense. If it is energized and executing, you have a work of some sort. And an early piece to, to, to play with that was called Thousand Year Dawn, in which a young man stands on the beach and uh, he watches the sun rise in this world. And it's a thousand year dawn, so the sun will take a thousand years to rise. So it's just inching over the horizon at the moment. And in 3005, it'll break free of the horizon. You'll see you know, a little sliver of sky underneath the sun, at which point the waiter, the waiting young man will leave the scene. And it, this piece doesn't end, but it is resolved because you know, it's a 1,000 year dawn. He witnesses it and then he leaves. And funnily enough, that was the first work I ever sold, this gallery in, in Vienna um, that was a very early, very important for me supporter called um, Ernst Hilger. He took it to Miami, you know, red hot market, you know, at that time. And also an appetite for experimental work, which has now, I mean, changed dramatically. I mean, the art market, to my experience, has become much more conservative in a funny way in, the, in, the, in, in that period, time period. It's 13 years since this happened. But he put it on the wall as an object, um, which included a computer and a screen, and it was kind of a comprehensive, resolved work, an object, which housed a simulation. And he sold six of them for like $15,000 in like 10 minutes. And I had never sold anything in my entire life. And I was there like, you know, it's just this kind of period of time where a huge amount of of wealth, you know, in, in uh, we did, we, we, we learned subsequently that it was derived from very dubious economic practices of subprime mortgages and such things. But people really had money to spend in 2005. And they spent it, in this case, on this very experimental media, this Thousand Year Dawn piece, which kind of touched on something for, for members of the public. I mean, we've all experienced death. And, you know, I think that piece fundamentally was about mourning and, and death and a dawn vigil, in a sense, that's then extended. But um, as I said before, then that money recycled back to the studio and I could I could work with more people and give them more time. And, you know, because to build a world like the one you have seen, mostly what it takes is time. You know, you just have to spend time with it. And on that basis, um, we are able to push the aesthetics perhaps even further than these enormous game companies because, like, we will dedicate a year to a single scene, you know. So they they will dedicate... 2,000 people to, you know, 200 scenes. But, you know, we'll dedicate, you know, a smaller number to one scene, but really stick with it, you know, to get it somewhere. You know, I always talk about this kind of um, almost slippery space where the public's relation to, to, the, to the simulation oscillates between almost trust on the one hand and uh, concern or, or discomfort on the other. And it's not an uncanny valley thing. It's more... You know, the medium has a number of 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 aspects which are post-cinematic. One is its frame rate. You know, like the frame rate can be cinematic, you know, 24 or 30, whatever. But um, it's often much more than that, 60 frames, 80 frames, you know, up to 100 frames for 120, 130 frames a second for earlier works. And it also has a, a density of resolution because we, we do what's called super sampling. So we produce the image from the graphics card at four times HD. So it's this enormous image, which is recompressed in real time down to a single frame, but brings all that information. You know, I mean, this process is still slightly mysterious for me, but it sends just a, a great abundance of information to the projector. And I think that it gives the, it gives the work a slightly, like a particular slippery quality. You can't quite work out, you know. People sometimes ask me if it's a live stream from, you know, like a real 
event. You know, it's kind of got some sort of relationship to the real. The first thing that really, really pulled me into what we now describe as simulation, real-time 3D, the game engine, was the ability to work with time in new ways in that space. And that early work, Thousand Year Dawn, was a very explicit investigation of that. And I guess also playing with time, in 06, I had come across um, a picture of a dust storm from 1935, uh, which is part of the Dust Bowl, you know, an extraordinary ecological catastrophe in American history, which is poorly understood socially. It really was the result of the emergence of petroleum and in internal combustion engines. It was not the result of a drought, because the drought is a very historic cycle in that part of the world. What happened was, post uh, the First World War, um, you had a dramatic spike in the price of grain, because Russia, in particular, had been a massive grain producer, was, was, was curtailed. And America jumped into the void and plowed up 100 million acres of the American Midwest in 10 years, from you know 1918 to the kind of late 20s. Uh, by the mid-30s, drought cycle comes around, and really the entire topsoil of that region just blew away. It dried up. The grasses that had held it in place for tens of thousands of years were no longer there, and that entire topsoil blew out to sea. And uh, the, the region has never recovered. It's, to date, one of the worst sort of total destructions of... Uh, ecology, in this case a grass ecology, in human history actually. An early kind of almost echo or ghost of, of the later climate change dynamics. And so I produced a work which both collapsed contemporary conditions, these kind of post-ecocide landscapes of Texas in my case, uh, which you know at one point would have had kind of waist high, it's called you know kind of bluegrass prairie, and now is, is literally kind of it can sustain one or two head of cattle per, per acre. You know, it's just very, very denuded of fertility. So I recorded that scene as it is now and then collapsed the historic storm back onto it. So we re rebuilt the storm as a simulation and put it on it. I guess the area that I'm most interested in is probably the streets, you know, the, the public public domain. I mean, this is a public setting, a museum, but the vast majority of society um, would never enter this space. It, 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 it doesn't, I wouldn't even know. I mean, I once pulled up in front of an art museum with a taxi driver and I said, I'm going into this building. He said, what is that? And I said, it's an art museum. And he said, well, you know, I mean, can I go in? <laughs> And I said, yes, of course you can go in. And he said, how would I know that I could go in? And I realized that it said in very stylish writing, you know, embedded in the wall, like the name of the museum, you know. But there was nowhere it would have said open to the public. It was just a presumption that, that members of the public would understand that this was public space. And I said, you know, this is your 
space. You can enter this space as a taxi driver, me as an artist, we can all enter the space. I think it was also free, actually, the space. You didn't even have to pay to go in. And I thought to myself afterwards that contemporary art museums should, instead of having their names, they should write open to the public in vast letters on their roofs, you know, and then do it in neon in front and, you know, say free and come and, you know. Um, so one of the ways that I get around that is I encourage institutions to place my work on the street. And in that setting, 98%, I mean, 99.9% of people have no idea who I am, which is, you know, obvious. But um, And they also would have a very, I would almost say an underdeveloped relationship to media. I mean, you know, that their relationship to media comes principally from television, you know, so it has a duration. And I will often sit in front of a work of mine, which would be an LED wall. And LED walls are a very powerful way to show in the public domain because you have them in daylight. They're, they're beautiful in daylight and they're incredibly beautiful at night. And so you can have you know, everything from, you know, the early morning workers, you know, coming into the city to kind of open cafes. You know, they have a certain experience of these annual worlds, you know, which because the sun may be coming up or, you know, and then you've got the workers and then you've got, you know, the night people. And yeah, they all develop a relationship with this work. But if I sit with the work, we often put a bench, you know, we design a bench, which is accompanies these public installations. I will sneakily sit down and, and listen to people, you know, and I will listen to them explaining the work to their friends in particular, you know, the kind of confident individual is explaining what it is. And um, mostly it's read as, as, as cinema. That's the most common response. And not only that, but then people have these kind of strange opinions that it is like a live video feed from, in the case, the most well-known of my works is probably the Solar Reserve piece, which is a great solar disc in Nevada, where the camera moves from the ground in this very smooth sort of um, curve up into orbit and then back down again. And I actually heard this this guy in New York explaining that this was this kind of incredible kind of drone that was just kind of driving up with a camera. And I'm like, oh, like that. And you know, he was explaining the piece in his own terms to his, you know, his friends. Um, one thing which has been a breakthrough work for me is a piece called Western Flag, which is a, a flag of smoke, which was commissioned as a, as a simulation to uh, be performed for live television which was a very interesting space to to be invited into in Channel 4 in the UK. So last year, April 21st, which was Earth Day, watching TV, um, suddenly this thing emerged unannounced and you had this black smoke flag. But they did a, a day on TV. They did a week in what's called Somerset House, this beautiful setting with an LED wall. Uh, but the most powerful thing that Channel 4 did um, was they live streamed Western Flag from, you know, its, its producing machine, its, its server, to the web for a month. And I'd never done that before. So you had a, a YouTube um, feed of the work for a month running. And that was, first of all, shared, you know, the live feed was shared. But I think most powerfully people clipped it. You know, they, they saw it and then they clipped it as, as little video clips. And um, they then distributed those clips pretty much globally, you know, through Facebook in particular, Instagram also quite powerfully. Uh, but what I then discovered was that there were these, because the piece is called Western Flag, it triggered these discussions. I mean, the first layer of the discussion was often, this artwork's trying to talk about climate change. Why is it putting smoke into the air? You know, why is it contributing to the problem? And somebody said, it's virtual and da-da-da. And then they're like, I can't believe it's virtual. And then they're like, well, okay, so it's virtual, but why is the West to blame? <laughs> and then it kind of got into... Great. I mean, a couple of the forums on Reddit had to be shut down because they became so contentious about national responsibility and, you know, 
historic consumption and the East, it should be Eastern flags. The Chinese are producing way more carbon dioxide. So that piece somehow it, it drifted from the medium in that it became a video clip, you know, from the original simulation, which was fine by me. It's a, it's a work to intervene in the public domain. That was the original commission. And secondly, it drifted from me as an author. You know, people began, you know, when Trump pulled out of the Paris agreements, um, people posted it as a personal protest, you know, and often missed, you know, it just became a kind of like an artifact, you know. And then um, that year, Independence Day in America, a lot of people on Facebook posted it as their kind of Independence Day American Trump flag, basically. So I think it's been seen online by hundreds of millions of people, actually. Like if I kind of look really through Facebook, you know, there's one site where it's been, one site alone has been seen by six million people. So I think, you know, when I talk to people from all sorts of diverse parts of the world, they have seen it. But again, with no um, authorship attached, which is fine, but it's um, it drifted into a different type of internet zone. But the reason I bring all this up is because in the comment section, I would say a couple of percent know it's a simulation and they tell everybody. So it's like, a, as they say, a learning opportunity. And, um, you know, it feels to me that that kind of mediums in terms of the public understanding of them and the acceptance of them take decades to unfold. I mean, look at histories of photography emerging in contemporary art. Look at histories of video. You know, the kind of experiments from Nauman in the 60s. I mean, you know, when when did they get their full public outing, you know, in major museums? I mean, the 90s, you know? I mean, maybe even, you know? And uh, now video is a very established medium for contemporary art, but... You know, I mean, Nauman's experiments were, I believe, in the mid-60s, was it? Late 60s? It's 50 years ago now, which is kind of amazing to imagine. That 50 years have gone by since his first, you know, incredibly important gestures with video. And I would imagine that perhaps not 50 years, but, you know, maybe in the next 10, 20 years, uh, there'll be a wider public understanding of the medium. I mean, funnily enough, my works have not only got slower and slower and slower over time, like they literally just keep getting slower, but they also have shed interactivity. You know, early works, you could actually turn the screen and look around these worlds. And the public had a kind of sense of control over this idea of the sculpture. And now it's actually shed that interactivity. It's, it's simply a camera path, which is consistent. I call it an orbit. You have cinema is informed by the timeline and the loop you know, because you get to the end of the timeline and you would go back to the start and see it again. Um, the medium simulation is informed by the orbit because, you know, you have a world, a camera can orbit around that world, but anything can happen on that orbit. You know, historic media, in a funny way, has only got faster. You know, like, I kind of find watching TV now shocking because you know, it's moving at such a pace nothing is still you know i watched bbc the other day and this newscaster was following the camera 
like she, the camera was like pivoting around her and she was like talking to the camera. All the screens behind her head were like showing content. There was a bar underneath that was showing more content. There was like news flashing up. And you know, the days of just like a blue background and a newscaster, you know, speaking the news. I mean, they just seem to be completely historic, you know. And in a funny way, that space of what they talk of kind of the internet generation or the post-internet generation, um, they kind of engage with the kind of hyperactivity of, of the internet that you can jump from, you know, from one YouTube video to the other very quickly and the content is coming at you from all sides. And, you know, so, you know, um, Ryan Tricartan kind of produced an aesthetic which was a sort of not only linguistically kind of glitch-ridden, but also kind of, you know, playing with, with speed, but speed in the sense of media speed, as in, you know, talking very fast. And because they're talking fast, the pitch rises because it's a record, you know. So it's, it's all a play, not really truly on what I would describe as algorithmic conditions. It's a play on, like, historic media recontextualized for the internet, which is historically now casting one's mind back. It's a curious way to respond to a data space, you know, through, you know, through how it kind of manipulates and kind of affects historic media. You know, funny, it's a kind of, and it was very influential, it is very influential, that aesthetic of sort of hysteria in a sense. And, you know, if I get to my, um, my data works, which are the Google Farms, they're just called farms. <laughs> you know, they're just like vast objects, which are deathly silent. And um, what I call black box conditions, which are the sites of production of algorithmic realities, are deathly silent. I mean, there is no soundtrack, you know, maybe the sound of fans blowing. Yeah, you know, there is no image, you know, it is a new type of power, you know, which is relentless and kind of consistent and um, I would say silent in a sense. And it's sort of impenetrable. Um, and not only that, but yeah, there's something to do with its scale is also kind of almost impenetrable. And, um, you know, one of the reasons my cameras are just so relentless is because, you know, I'm fascinated just by you know, the relentlessness of, of data exchange, you know, like even if you look at something like um, algorithmic stock trading, you know, just it's, it's vast scale, it's relentlessness, it's silence. It's just this kind of ongoing dynamic, which is, is so powerful and, and, and generates so much wealth for so, so a, a very small number of people. So I guess I'm responding to, to some of the conditions, some of the, some of the kind of algorithmic conditions that I I'm aware of. And part of that is is not responding to the tempo of historic media, you know, that's our, our, our sound or any of those things, um, or the edit, you know, or the cut or the splice. I mean, you know, like somebody once described a piece of mine, which is called um, oil stick work, which is this man painting a barn over 30 years as, you know, the longest shot in history, you know, because it is like basically I mean, it just is one shot. It just, it never ends, you know, because it just seamlessly orbits. And so it's sort of somehow like the data space in, it introduces a, a different language. And I guess my work is trying to address it. And part of it is, is, is just what you experience, which is just 
these vast worlds which are completely silent and over which you have no power. You know, you just witness them if you know about them at all. My software, the first thing it asks as it is opening, like literally the first question it asks is, is what time is it? What date is it? And with certain works, where am I? You know, where, 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 you know, where physically am I? And my worlds are formed around that information. So, you know, the landscape is formed as a, as props, but then, you know, the sun, like you see it, if you start the artwork, the sun moves into the right position sheds its light on the props, the shadows fall into place, you know, all the image dynamics fall into place. You know, the character will arrive and get into position, you know, as he should be or she should be at that time in that place. Um, but it all is like assembled. I mean, it's funny, you know, you see the whole world being kind of built before you and then, you know, it's finished and all the render, you know, it takes up to 30 seconds to put it all together. So really the work is assembled around time and that is its kind of core nature you know and then um if you have a thousand year dawn and um it is switched off for 30 years in conceptual space the man works on i mean he works on because when the work opens next he will have done the work because he has worked on even if it's not running i mean he has worked on because that's how the that piece of theater is designed, you know, like it doesn't matter if there's, I mean, if you're not witnessing it, it doesn't matter. He will work on. Um, so it'll form around its date and time. And you can trick it to a degree by changing the date, but we have put limits on on that. So if you want to see him finishing his work, you really do have to wait till 2038. So Because it's also interesting for people not to be able to fully consume media, you know, that they don't have full, you know, because if you watch a film, you possess it, you know, by the 90 minutes is up, you have kind of, consumed and possessed that cultural output and it's what sometimes frustrates people with with the work that i'm doing is that like i mean i cannot see the whole thing you know i cannot have the entire experience and you know that's one of the interesting things about this medium is that no you can retain you know that satisfaction or like that consumption you know, forbid that consumption you cannot consume the entire thing unless you give it some time basically but the last thing, I think because of the pace of the work, you know, the pace of the camera, the pace of the action, yeah, we often put a bench in the space. And people do sit down and um, they sort of drift a little bit with the piece. I've seen it, you know, like they kind of, I think they're also thinking their own thoughts and, you know, they're often peaceful environments. You know, they're silent, you know, and they're, you know, there's this kind of visually slightly weird, very slow drifting world. And so... I do see people um, 
kind of almost entering that sort of different type of space, you know, which is very different from the other videos, you know, because they have this this narrative. They're moving. They have edits. They're cuts. They're and somehow people are so saturated with that type of media. You know, I see people in museums. They don't give moving image video. I mean, it's very rare they give it any time. You know, it's curious. It's a pity because there's some great work out there. But, but I mean, you can basically understand everything in my work in five seconds because you kind of have it all there. But if you sit down and just kind of take a rest, you know, you'll get to kind of understand a bit more of it, but not that much more. You know, there's not that much going on. Mm-hmm.